Amen. How many of you are ready to get into the Word of God? Good to see all of you. Now, I got to tell you, standing over there worshiping, I, I had a throwback, or what we call it, deja vu? A deja vu? Because when I started in ministry, it was in the Jesus movement, uh, way back in the 70s, <laughs> the, the, the early 70s, and anyway, you know, I had hair down to here, and, and uh, I was fresh out of hippiedom, and, um, and um, skinny as a toothpick, and uh, just had fallen in love with Jesus because Jesus touched me, and that's all I knew. So I started going to this Bible study, and that, this is where I cut my teeth spiritually. Uh, it's where I learned how to teach. But we always went in um, faded jeans, all right? And it was just a guitar player. And tonight, for the first time that I can remember, I'm talking about decades, I wore faded jeans to church. This, this is a major moment for me, faded jeans. I mean, I wear jeans, but they're nicer jeans, not faded. But tonight, I didn't have any nicer ones. So I threw on the faded ones. And I'm standing over there thinking, you know, I'm all the way back to the 70s, there was a guitar playing, and I'm sitting here in faded jeans. I just don't have hair down here, but anyway, it's the only difference. So um, it's good to know that all these years later, I've still got my hands up and still worshiping God, amen? Amen. Um, all right, we're gonna look tonight. We are in a series called Prophecies Yet to Be Fulfilled. Prophecies Yet to Be Fulfilled. Now, if there was ever a time the church needs to know the Bible, really know the Bible, it's today. Amen? And so it's a good thing that we do Bible studies like this, not just a topical message where I stand up and preach on a certain topic, which I do on Sundays usually, but that we go through the Bible, verse by verse, book by book, and learn it. Now, one thing you need to know about your Bible is that a quarter of it is prophecy, you know that? A quarter of it is prophecy. And I'm talking about predicting future events. A quarter of it is prophecy. I happen to believe that the Bible prophecy, predicting future events, is one of the ways we know that this is the word of God. Because only God can tell you what's going to happen in the future because he's already there. Right? What does he say about himself? I know the end from the beginning. So I know the way something is going to end, the way it's going to finish before it starts. Only God knows that because, as I shared last time, he's not in time. God created time. But he's outside of time looking in. Now, it's hard for our minds to grasp that, uh, wrap your mind around it. It'll turn your brain into a pretzel, but... The fact is that God sees all of history at one glance. He sees yesterday, he sees today, he sees the end of time. Or how could John have told us how our world is going to end? See, in Genesis, you have the beginning of our world. In Revelation, you have the end of our world. In Genesis, you have the beginning creation of all things. In the book of Revelation, you have God making all things new. So Genesis, the book of beginnings, Revelation, the book of endings. We know exactly how the world's going to end. It's not evolving into a better place, you know, getting better and better over time. That's hogwash. It is declining. It is, it is, it is dumbing down. Uh, it, is, it is decaying. And it is becoming more and more uh, steeped in heavy-duty industrial strength iniquity, right? I mean, this is what we're seeing. And, and so it's, it's not headed to a better place. It's headed to a climax. And the climax is when Jesus Christ returns to the earth and ends time as we have known it. This Life, world, history, the, the rhythm of life, everything that we've known and read about, looking back and experiencing now, 
it is all going to come to an end. And Jesus is going to set up a new heaven, a new earth. Uh, uh, he's going to launch the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is a thousand years of glorious rule from him. Where the lion will lay down with the lamb. They will beat their swords into plowshares and, they, and, they, and there will be war no more. And devil will be bound. Isn't that wonderful? The devil will be bound. So what we're looking at as we study the book of Daniel, and particularly next week. Now tonight's good. It's good stuff. But next week, if there's any one that you don't want to miss, it's next week. Because next week, we're going to look at one of the most profound prophecies in the entire word of God. And that is Daniel's 70 weeks. And I guarantee you, you're going to walk out of here uh, in a stupor when we look at this prophecy that God gave Daniel. But tonight, I'm giving you a forewarning. We're looking at some history. But I'm going a direction. I know where I'm going. And when I'm done, uh, you're going to be even more convinced that the Bible is the very word of God. All right? Now, last time we closed out chapter 7 of Daniel. Because remember, I've told you, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand Daniel. And if you understand Daniel, you're going to be able to understand the book of Revelation. Daniel is like the Old Testament book of Revelation. Okay? Now, we saw, the, we saw Daniel's vision of the return of Jesus and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Now, as we begin chapter 8, Daniel is given another amazing prophetic vision. And let's read it. There it is up there. It's chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year, now he's going to tell us, he always tells us when he had these dreams and visions. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, depending on where you're from, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So this is vision number two. He said, I had that first vision. We've already looked at it. Now we're going to see a second one. So the timeline here is the third year of Babylon's final king, Belshazzar. He's the one that witnessed the supernatural hand writing on the wall, telling him that his time had come and the kingdom of um, Babylon was uh, done. Is it finito? Okay done. So, so this, this handwriting on the wall, and Daniel, as an old man, came in and interpreted it and said, well, here's what it says, meeny, meeny, tekel, you parson. Uh, what it's saying, essentially, King Belshazzar is, you're toast, and the kingdom of Babylon is toast. And that night, the Medes and the Persians, you remember, raided Babylon. Belshazzar was killed, and a brand new kingdom took over like that. And that was a fulfillment of the first dream. That Babylon would be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, the dream went on to say, would be replaced by the Greeks. The Greeks, it went on to say, would be replaced by the Romans. 600 years of history forecasted in one dream. You've got to think about what we're talking about here. It's a mind-blower. Daniel likely received this vision not long before the death of Belshazzar and the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes and Persians. So Daniel lets us know that this vision is a continuation of the vision in the preceding chapter, chapter 7, that he refers to as the one that appeared to me for the first time. So he's beginning to have these heavy-duty, major prophetic dreams. We're going to see that this new vision is regarding the overthrow, it's, 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 it's repeat, regarding the overthrow of the Persian monarchy. And that Persian monarchy hasn't even been established yet, but he dreams about its overthrow by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And that Alexander's kingdom, the Greek kingdom under Alexander, Greece's first king, would go into four parts or four leaders and then the oppression of Israel. He sees in this dream the oppression of Israel, this is real important, by a man that we're going to look at more in just a little bit, 
named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now that name really matters, who we'll talk about more in just a little bit. Now Daniel continues in verse 2. Look what he says, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. For some reason, the prophets of God often had visions by rivers. Maybe the Holy Ghost, being compared to a river, likes rivers. I'm right there with them. I love rivers. Love water. All right. Now, verse 3. Now, now here you get the idea or the, the sense that Daniel feels like he's watching a movie. He's watching a movie because he, he says, I looked. And, and look what he says in verse 3. I lifted my eyes and saw. And there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. Everybody say a ram. Now, this ram, remember, uh, we, we, we saw that beast before with horns, ten horns. Uh, there was a picture of Rome. But now here's horns again. And it's a ram with two horns. Now, in the vision of chapter 7, there were four animals because God was speaking about four kingdoms. Babylonians, Medes and Persians, Greeks and Romans. But in chapter 8, in his second vision, Daniel is receiving revelation about only two kingdoms. Hence, you have a ram with two horns. So God is speaking in picturesque, metaphorical, illustrative language. All right? Now, the first of the four empires, which was Babylon, is completely omitted here because its fate is already known, and it was now reaching its end. It was about to end when he had this dream. But the second empire, in the former vision, the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire, is the first focus in this second vision. And what is compared to a bear in chapter 7 is here symbolized as a ram in chapter 8. Okay? So chapter 7, Medes and the Persians were like a bear. But in chapter 8, the Medes and the Persians are like a ram. This ram has two horns. And according to the angel Gabriel, who speaks to Daniel in verse 20 of this chapter, it symbolizes the empire of the Medes and the Persians, which have been combined into one great coalition by the emperor Cyrus. Cyrus was the Persian emperor. Now, Cyrus matters a lot in another way. Did you know that Isaiah predicted that Cyrus, a man named Cyrus, a king named Cyrus, okay, Isaiah predicted that a king named Cyrus, long after Isaiah died, would rise up and would be the one who released the Jews out of Babylon. He even called his name Cyrus before he was a sparkle in his mama's eye. He called him by name. So after the Babylonians, or after the uh, children of Judah, children of Israel had been in Babylon for 70 years, per Jeremiah's prediction that they would only be there 70 years, a king named Cyrus, the Persian king, told them, you're free to go. Go rebuild Jerusalem. Go rebuild the wall. Go home. He knew his name. So you think God didn't know your name before you were born? God knows your name. Matter of fact, the Bible says he's tattooed you on the palms of his hands. Amen. Amen. Bible prophecy blows my mind. It's powerful stuff. Now, <clears throat> um, so the reason the ram has two horns is because there's two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. Together conquered Babylon and they replaced it. So that's the two horns. Horns in the Bible, as I've shared with you in the past, always represent authority, power, and kingdoms. All right? Notice that one of the horns is higher than the other. That's because though the Medes had a longer, richer history than the Persians, under Cyrus, the Persians gained the ascendancy. So this dream, catch this. Here's Daniel. He's like he's watching a movie and he sees this ram and the ram has two horns coming out of its head. And one of them is shorter than the other. And the Medes and the Persians hadn't even conquered Babylon yet. 
There was no way of knowing that when the Medes and the Persians came in, that the Persians would gain the ascendancy, and that's why one of the horns was, was bigger than the other, longer than the other. So the dream told it all. Our God knows the end from the beginning. Now Daniel begins to see some heavy activity. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became great. So this ram, the Medes and the Persians, uh, illustrated by this ram, are now seen to be very aggressive, and they're pushing militarily westward, northward, southward, but he never says eastward, just those first three directions. No other animal, that is, no other kingdom could withstand him. The Medes and the Persians, in their, in their zenith, nobody could stand against them when they attacked. They won the day, but only as long as God allowed them to be on the world scene. It was all fulfilled. History tells us that under Cyrus himself, the Persians pushed their conquest westward as far as the Aegean Sea, subduing Babylonia, Syria, Asia Minor, and extended them to part of Greece under his successors, Darius and Xerxes. And then they pushed northward and subdued. I know these names don't mean anything to you, but I'm going to read them anyway. They pushed northward and subdued the Lydians, the Iberians, the Albanians, the Armenians, the Cappadocians, and the adjacent countries, and a lot of other Ians. And perfectly in line with Daniel's prophetic vision, they pushed southward and they conquered Arabia, Ethiopia, Egypt, and India. But notice in Daniel's prophecy, the ram says nothing about eastward. And we know historically the Medo-Persian Empire never turned eastward. Come on, everybody. God knows when you're going to take your next breath. Yeah. Amen? Amen. That's why we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. Every day, bow to him and say, Jesus, you're Lord. Amen. Because your next breath is in his hands. America will last as long as God has said so. So will China, so will Russia, so will all the rest of them. They're going to last as long as God said so. But our God, who we worship tonight, already knows when every nation on earth will end. He already knows. Now next, another player steps onto the pages of history in Daniel's dream. And here we go. Verse 5, as I was considering, thinking about what I've already seen, suddenly a male goat came from the west. First was the ram, now there's a goat. Across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So here's another animal with another horn. All right? Now, the male goat here is the introduction of the next kingdom, the Greeks. And the notable horn, we know for a fact, was Alexander the Great. The fact that Daniel sees his feet not touching the ground describes the way Alexander conquered the world of his day. With great speed and great rapidity, remember that in Daniel's first dream, he was characterized as a leopard. The fastest land animal in existence, a leopard, can go so fast. You do not want to try to outrun a leopard. And so, again, the dream is perfectly illustrative of the Greek kingdom. It's going to come quickly. It's going to be powerful. And it's going to have one major leader by, uh, illustrated by one horn, and that was Alexander the Great. Now, then we see a battle happening in verse 6. Then he came to the ram. So we've got the ram being confronted by the goat. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. So what is happening here, everybody? The Greeks are attacking the Medes and Persians. That's what it's illustrating. All right? He comes at him with furious power, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. 
And this is exactly the way Alexander would attack the Medes and the Persians. And remember, folks, Daniel's having this dream when Babylon was still standing. Medes and Persians hadn't even come, much less the Greeks. But he's seeing how it's all going to go down. Amen. Now, history tells us that originally the Persians had attacked the Greeks under their leader, Darius. And now under Alexander's leadership, the Persians are being attacked in return, and they are decimated. And there was no power in the ram, writes Daniel, to stand before him. It was not even a fight. The Greeks took the Persians and stomped them, and they were gone. Do you see how quickly, everybody, nations can come and go? Do you see it? Are, are you catching that? You know, we tend to think, you know, oh, just like America, you know, we tend to be very America-centric in our thinking. You know, it's always going to be here. You know, America is the greatest nation on earth, greatest nation in history. It's always going to be here. No, it's not. Hate to break it to you, but it's not. Because there's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. And that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only kingdom that's going to last forever. Okay? So, so here we just see kingdoms coming and going. Now, it took a couple of centuries with each one of them. But so we're kind of looking, you know, from above and watching it all happen fast. But still, kingdoms came, kingdoms went. Leaders rose, leaders were put down. The world scene and the world stage had constant, a constant uh, uh, rotation of actors and players. Okay? Alexander routed all the Persian forces, took all the cities and castles, and entirely subverted and ruined the Persian Empire. Now, Daniel continues to describe Alexander and the Greeks. Look what he says, verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, the Greeks... But when he became strong, what happened to the large horn? It was broken. Now, Daniel saw this centuries before Alexander. He said, I saw that horn, and it was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So the, the, that one horn was broken. Four smaller horns took its place. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that while Alexander was an extraordinary military genius, nobody like him in military history. Maybe Napoleon, he might have been kind of close, but Alexander, he was something, especially when you think he conquered most of the known world before he was 30. I know 30-year-old people still living with their parents. He was conquering the world when he was hardly 30, Right? I mean, so there are two accounts of Alexander's death, and both include over-drinking, slipping into fever, and dying. So do you know that you can conquer the whole world and can't conquer yourself? You know the Bible says that the man who is in control of himself is stronger than a man who takes a city? Because here is Alexander a mighty, mighty, incredible, prodigious, unequaled military genius could conquer anything he set his eyes, but he couldn't conquer Alexander. Drinking himself into a stupor, he got sick, got a fever, and died at 33. That was it, kaput. And the Bible says that the horn, Alexander, in Daniel's vision, is broken and four notable horns replace it. And we know that four of Alexander's generals replaced him, just like the dream said, showing the incredible accuracy of Daniel's vision from God. Wow. Folks, are you catching this? How, how accurate God is with the future. And what has he said about our future? The trump shall sound. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. How about that one? Let's try that one on for size. If the Bible is right about all these others, to a T, what about the rest of the unfulfilled prophecy? It's all going to happen. Exactly like we're reading here. This is uncanny. This is unbelievable. I almost get more out of Daniel than I do the book of Revelation. And I love the book of Revelation. 
Now we're going to see another player step onto the stage of history. Verse 9, and this one matters because here comes Antiochus Epiphanes. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly. Now, out of one of who? One of those four generals. Out of one of those four generals' descendants came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, the east, and towards the glorious land. And the glorious land is Jerusalem and the Middle East and, and the land that God promised Abraham. That's the glorious land. Now, remember... In chapter 7, we were introduced to another little horn, and it came up from the midst of ten horns, or nations. Remember that? All right? But now, we show that these ten horns are ten nations that are going to evolve out of the ancient Roman Empire, and they're symbolized by the terrible beast that so troubled Daniel when he had the first dream. All right? But now, this next little horn, are you ready? Follow me. This isn't the same little horn. This is not the same man. How do we know that? Because his origins are different. Instead of appearing in the midst of the ten horns of the Roman Empire, this little horn comes out of one of the four horns or generals that inherit Alexander's kingdom. So one of those four generals Children's or children's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are going to be this little horn. And that's exactly what happened. One of the four generals was named Antiochus the Great. That was one of the original four. And out of his family came a vile man named Antiochus Epiphanes. So out of one of the horns that broke off from Alexander came a descendant. And he was known as a wicked, evil, vile man. Follow me, everybody. He is a type of Antichrist. He's a type. Have you ever stopped to think of what a type might mean? They resemble Antichrist. They act like we're told Antichrist is going to act. But they're not actually the Antichrist. But they resemble him to the point that they're a type. Like Hitler, a lot of people were convinced that Hitler was the Antichrist. They just knew that he was the Antichrist, but he wasn't. But was he a type? Oh, yes. Now, the name Epiphanes comes from a root name meaning madman. And man, that really fits him. In chapter 7, we're introduced to the Antichrist who is yet to come. Follow this now. Chapter 7 identifies the real McCoy, the Antichrist. But here in chapter 8, we're introduced to a type of the Antichrist by his actions and behavior and his blasphemies. Antiochus Epiphanes was able by hook and crook to gain control of Syria from which he began, began to attack other nations. But he was a terrible anti-Semite. Let's read more about him, verse 10. And it, the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, grew up to the host of heaven. And it, that is he, cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now this is picturesque language. What does it mean? The host of heaven here likely points to the Jewish priesthood who by their continual attendance on God's service in the temple were like the angels in heaven. So they're called stars. In the Bible, you will note that people of principal dignity and high offices are often called stars in the scriptures. So Dan, like in the book of Revelation, um, pastors are recognized as stars. Um, and that's how they're identified. So people with a call on their life or with a particular prominence in the spiritual world were often in the Bible called stars, and that's what's happening here. And it says Antiochus Epiphanes is going to attack these stars and bring them down. He's going to wage war against God's anointed. He's a type of Antichrist. Daniel continues in verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince, capital P, of the host. So who's the prince of the host? I believe it's Christ. 
And by him, that is Antiochus, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So Antiochus Epiphanes would move in to the sacrifices that they were uh, doing in the temples per the Mosaic law, the sin sacrifice and all the other sacrifices. And Antiochus Epiphanes would swoop in and take charge of the temple and stop all of that. Okay? So the prince of the host here is likely either God himself or Christ because Antiochus Epiphanes removed the legitimate high priest of the temple representing God and he installed a man named Jason in his place and Jason was an ungodly, despicable pagan who set up heathen rites in God's temple and that's called the abomination of desolation. Uh, Antiochus invaded the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig, a pig, a forbidden creature for the Jews. He went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig in total blasphemy against God, and that was called the abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus Epiphanes did that. So he was vile, he was sacrilegious, he was utterly disrespectful of anything that had to do with God or anything that was sacred. And so he put a man over the temple who was a devil. It's like if I, it's like if I walked away and we put an atheist in charge of this church. It's like, it's like that. That's what it was like. Antiochus also committed blasphemy because he did stop the daily sacrifices and he forbade them from worshiping in the temple. This was a huge deal, folks. How did you feel when during COVID you saw authority figures all over America command churches to shut down, but gambling casinos could stay open? How did you feel about that? Did you feel tread upon? Did you feel uh, disrespected? Did you feel like, did it give you a righteous anger that, that they would come in and let strip joints and gambling casinos stay open? But no, the church can't stay open. No, and they shut the churches. How'd that make you feel? Well, let me tell you, you weren't raised in the level of religion the Jews were of this day. To them, the temple was next best thing to heaven. And here comes this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he shuts down the temple. He, he, he blasphemes the God of the temple. He commits the abomination of desolation in the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah glory would meet between the wings of the cherubim. He sacrificed a pig there, and he totally persecuted and killed tons of Jewish people. Not a great guy. He's a type of antichrist. Daniel says, in the place of his sanctuary, that is God's sanctuary, was cast down, cast out, rendered profane. And so it happened, just like Daniel dreamed. The temple was deprived of the honor and privileges that belonged to a holy place. Now, it also uh, included profaning the high priesthood, that, which Antiochus put up for sale. And the man who, who paid the most money could just become a priest. Yeah, it was a totally bought and paid for. Uh, the, the man with the, the highest dollar bid can become the priest. Had nothing to do with the calling of God. Had to do with who could pay their way in. Amen. And he let utterly godless men have it. So the sanctuary and the priesthood were completely defiled. Now Daniel continues with his focus on this wicked man in the next verse. Look at verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, Antiochus Epiphanes. An army was given to him to oppose the daily sacrifices. And look what it says he did. He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Listen carefully to me. You can know the devil is behind something when truth is cast to the ground. You can know Satan is directly behind something when God's truth, the truth of God's word, is cast to the ground and trampled. Now I ask you, is Satan moving around today in that way? Because look what he did. An army was given to him, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this in prosper. He hated 
Not just the God of the truth, but the truth of God. And so he cast it to the ground. He trampled it. Paul talked in Romans 1 about suppressors of the truth. You can know that Satan is moving when God's truth is suppressed, cast down, stomped on, and rejected. I ask you tonight, how's it working out for us that in the 60s, we decided to remove God's truth from the schools? And prayer, the mention of Jesus, tore the Ten Commandments off the walls, and the Supreme Court literally said, we're concerned that those commandments could corrupt the minds of our children. <laughs> yeah. So you take the truth out, metal detectors come in. You take prayer out, and, and, and violence comes in. And, and, and you take God out, and his truth out, and what are they being taught now? I ask you, what are they being taught now? They're, they're not being taught reading, writing, and arithmetic. No, they're not being taught that. They're being taught to hate other races. They're being taught that if you are a little boy and you decide that you're a girl, you can go right to your teacher and say, teacher, uh, I know I was born um, male, but I, I am convinced that I'm a, a girl locked up in a, in a boy's body. And that teacher in some states in some states, and, and the teachers hate it. There's teachers leaving because they don't want to do this. But the teachers are being ordered, you call them by the pronoun of their choice. If it's a he, you call it she, or you're going to lose your job. So here's what's happening in America. Because remember now, he's a type of antichrist. And Antichrist is antichristos. I am against Christ and everything Christ stands for, including his truth. So if I'm against it, I'm going to suppress it. I'm going to, I'm going to cast truth down to the ground. I'm going to resist it, push back against it, and fight against it with everything in me. And that's what's happening in the schools right now. That's what's happening. You can't go to a lot of schools. And I hear from teachers, and God bless the teachers. I've seen the teachers stand up and take a stand for Jesus and take a stand for what is right. We have a lot of teachers in our own congregation, and I take my hat off to them because if I was a teacher in this day and age, God would have to restrain me. All right? But we're watching truth resisted. And, and, and so, as a result, America has gone officially morally insane. America right now is in a state of moral insanity. When right is wrong and wrong is right and good and bad and bad is good and moral is immoral and immoral is moral. And if you say immoral is immoral, you're immoral and you're wrong and you're a bigot, and all kinds of wonderful adjectives you will be called immediately. I look at America and I say, truly, I'm sorry, I'm feeling a little worked up. But I'm going to tell you, I feel like the lunatics are running the asylum. We're in moral insanity. No, no, a little boy is going to decide that he's not a little boy and, and all the adults have to go along with it? Are you kidding me? That's insanity. When I was a little boy, I was playing with marbles and skates, not deciding whether or not I was the gender I was born to be. But that's where we have taken things. It's insanity. It's insanity. Professing themselves to be wise, they have become fools. From the Greek word that means moron. Oh, no, I'm just telling you. That's what the Greek word means, fools. It comes from a word moronic. Morons, um, stupid. No, I'm just telling you. <laughs> I better, I better get back to my notes. Well, Pastor, if you're not being sensitive, no, I'm exercising common sense, rational thought, which is going the way of the dodo bird. 
rational thought. Listen, if you want to keep your, your brain sane, you better be in the Word of God every day. Every day. I heard somebody in here say, Harold, what'd you bring me to tonight? Well, listen, Harold, you need this. Because seriously, the Bible is the place of sanity. Okay, I got to move on. Now, (laughs) I can't even find where I was. Oh, here's where I was. All right. Next, Daniel does what no false prophet dares do. He writes down the exact time this awful period of persecution will last. Listen to what he says in verse 13. I heard a holy one speaking, an angel or a seer or a watcher or something. And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? In other words, how long is Antiochus going to be allowed to do this? The first holy one replies with an answer. Look at verse 14, mind blower. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So he, look at that, 2,300 days. He brings it down to the number of days. A year contains 365 days. 2,300 days makes six years, three months, and 18 days. That's how long his reign lasted. This time period begins with the first entrance of Antiochus into Judea when he profaned the priesthood. So when he first began his thing, the hourglass was turned upside down. And it includes his return a second time when he banned their worship, set up an idol in the temple, which was the abomination that makes desolate, and he interrupted the daily sacrifice. And it ends, real important here, when a man named Judas Maccabeus invaded Jerusalem and drove Antiochus and his forces out. And when Judas Maccabeus drove Antiochus out, 2,300 days had passed. Do we serve a mighty God? Now, um, The Maccabean revolt is what that's talking about. Judas Maccabeus going in and kicking him out of the the temple and kicking him out of Jerusalem and sending him packing um, is called the Maccabean revolt. And it's celebrated every year in what is called, what holiday? Hanukkah. And you know the Hanukkah will begin this year in just a couple of weeks, November 28th. Sunday, Hanukkah will begin, and it ends Monday, December the 6th, one week later. So when you hear about Hanukkah, you will know that that is when Judas Maccabeus, a mighty man anointed by God, uh, and his sons basically said, I've had all that I can stand, I can't stand no more. Okay? They stepped across the line, and he gathered together an army And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple and he drove Antiochus out and cleansed the temple as the dream said and gave the temple back to the Jews. And that was the Maccabean revolt and that's Hanukkah. Amen? Verse 15, we're coming to a close. Then it happened when I, Daniel had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli River who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now just just for the record, there's two archangels. Lucifer was a third archangel, but he's the devil now. But he was the anointed cherub and he was an archangel. But he gave it all up when he sinned. Two archangels remained, Michael and Gabriel. You will note in Scripture that Michael is always the one dispatched by God to undertake warfare. He's the warring archangel. Gabriel is always the one that God anointed to to bring revelation to his chosen people. 
So Michael was the warrior. Gabriel was the revealer, the one that brought revelation. It's Gabriel that appeared to young Mary and said, hey, guess what? You're going to have the Christ child. That was Gabriel. Okay? So here's Gabriel being told, tell Daniel what all this means. The ram which you saw having two horns, those are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms will rise out of that nation, but not with the same degree of power as the Greeks under Alexander. And that's true. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, and that's talking about Antiochus, having fierce features, he will understand sinister schemes. Now, as I read this, remember, this is a type of antichrist, okay? So look how it describes him. He'll have fierce features. In other words, he will have a, a um, standout countenance. He will stand out. He won't blend in a crowd. Sharp features, chiseled features, fierce features. He'll understand sinners or schemes. In other words, he'll be able to plot and scheme with the best of them. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Well, by whose power? The devil's. And the Antichrist will have power, but not by his own power. It'll be Satan's power. Then look at what it says. He will destroy fearfully, so will Antichrist. He will prosper and thrive, so will Antichrist. He will destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Antichrist will do that for a three and a half year season during the Great Tribulation. Through his cunning, verse 25, he will cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He will be a deceiver. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that God will send strong delusion. That they would believe not a lie, but he uses the definite article, the lie. And what's the lie? Antichrist and the delusion. Says, Paul said, because, they, because the world believed not and accepted not the love of the truth found in Christ, God will send them a strong delusion. So the whole world will come under a delusion. I used to read that and go, how's that going to happen? I don't wonder anymore. He shall exalt himself in his heart. So will the Antichrist. Antichrist will declare that he is God. He will destroy many in their prosperity. So will the Antichrist. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. That's divinity. So will Antichrist. But he shall be broken without human means. Hallelujah. Amen. So will the Antichrist. Tonight on the radio, we got a call. No, no, no. Before the, we got calls, um, the host... Uh, Mike was saying that he's in Hawaii right now suffering for Jesus. And so he was, he was saying that last night they, they hiked uh, to a volcano. And, and they looked in the, in the volcano. He said, I was looking at this bubbling, churning, red-hot lava. And I thought of the lake of fire, which is an actual physical place. And I said, yeah, you know... Um, the Bible says God has given us the things we can see to teach us about things we cannot see. The lake of fire is a literal physical place. And do you know who the first two human beings are going to be to be thrown in the lake of fire? Antichrist and the false prophet. Right now, there ain't nothing in the lake of fire. Nothing. Nothing's there. We say, well, then where did everybody go? You talk about people going to hell. They go to Hades, and that's another teaching. They're in Hades because the Bible says that when the great white throne judgment rolls around and everybody is judged for their sin except believers, um, and it's Christ sitting on that great white throne, it says death and Hades will spew up the dead that are in them. Well, that's where you go if you die lost you go to Hades. That's where the rich man was um, who had the servant named Lazarus. And Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, but the rich man was in Hades looking across that great chasm at his former servant who is now 
in Abraham's bosom, which was the good part of Hades, because Hades had two parts. And he's in the bad part. And, and listen, everybody, gosh, I didn't mean to get, real quick, he had a memory. Let me go tell my brothers about this place. This is terrible. He had sensation. Put a drop of water on my tongue, please. He could see what he missed because he sees Abraham in the good part of Hades with the servant in his bosom and he sees the glory and he says, Lord, let me go tell my brothers and warn them about this place. And he said, you don't understand, son. There's a great chasm between you and the good part of Hades. You can't cross over and they can't cross over to you. So I was talking to Mike about that on the air and that there is going to be a lake of fire and the Bible says the great white throne judgment, whoever, whosoever's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and forever. I can't, I can't conceive of it. I don't even like to try to think of it, but I do believe it because Jesus said it. We're almost done. The Antichrist will be broken without human means. And the vision in the evenings and the mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, I fainted. And I was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but nobody understood it. Amen. Let's stand up together. Strong stuff. So do you see with me, everybody? Watch this. Let's close on this note. If what Daniel predicted about Antiochus Epiphanes came to pass precisely down to the last day of his rule, then is God right about the Antichrist to come? Is he right about the catching up of the saints to come? Is, is he right about all of us going to heaven one day? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's all the unfulfilled prophecies, and we're looking at a major one next week. Don't miss next week. Because you think tonight was good? Wait till next week. All right? Let's lift our hands. Thank you, Lord. Praise your name. Praise your name. Praise your name. Glory to the Lamb of God. 